Hear me all right? Praise the Lord, His mercies are more. Her sins, they are many. His mercies are more. Does it always feel like that? Ever feel like the darkness is stronger than the light? So, one of the things I used to uh, say to my children, and two of them are here, so they'll vouch that this is true. I would, like most parents, say, would you mind doing this? Would you mind, you know, I don't know, doing something, taking out the, taking out the garbage, taking, uh, you know, cleaning up your room on the grass. Would you mind doing this? And they might, you know, sort of smart alecky respond, yeah, yeah, I might. And I would say at that time, I know it seems like I'm asking, but I assure you, it only seems so. Things can sometimes seem one way and yet be fundamentally different. It can seem like the darkness of this world is powerful. It can seem like uh, our sins are overwhelming. It can seem like the corruption of humanity is so utterly complete that we are without hope. But I assure you, it only seems so. I'm Alan Amoson, by the way. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm a member of this church. I am not Pastor Chris. I'm, I'm shorter and, and less stubbled. Yes. <laughs> Thank heavens he's not here. Yeah, uh, no, he's better than me. Um, but he's not here. So you get me this week. And uh, he's away on a mission trip, as you heard earlier, uh, supporting our, our, our family, our team in, in Peru, leading a team to support the family in Peru, and and we want to remember and pray for him. Um, Knowing Chris as I do, he's the sort of guy who wishes he could be there and here too. But one of the limits that God has placed on us is we can only be one place one time. Uh, He, God, can be every place at all times. Um, But that's just not true of us, and so Chris is there, and this week you get me. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the difference between how things can seem and how they really are. Uh, because I think it's a really important distinction for us to remember, and it can give us tremendous comfort. I, I, I titled it Wisdom in Action simply because I, I believe, and I'll define this for you later, I believe that the more we can um, understand things as they truly are rather than as they seem, the more we'll be able to act in a way that is both fulfilling to us, edifying for the body, and honoring to God. So, as I get into that, let me start with a couple of pictures. All right. You see this picture? Picture of clouds. Hit it again from the same spot. Look at the difference. All right. One more. Picture of? Could have been last night. Look at that. All right, here's the deal. What I want you to remember about this is that in both cases, the reality of what is there is there whether it's obscured from your vision or not. It's always there. It is, in fact, the reality that is there. We simply don't see it because, well, candidly, it just it, 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 our, our vision is obscured for whatever reason. But the reality of what is there is always there. In fact, theologists... And philosophers 
Uh, I know we have at least one seminarian in here at the time, uh, may have more. But you guys know that theologists would call this an immutable characteristic. It is something that does not change. God's character is said to be immutable. It does not change. The reality of, in this case, the Grand Canyon or of the Milky Way galaxy is immutable. It's there whether we see it or not. And we have to recognize that for whatever reason in the world that we have, sin, corruption, just the way things are, sometimes we don't see things as they are because the things that are immutable are sometimes obscured by the things that change. Now, one of those things that change is us. We change like the weather. God is immutable. We change every single day. How many of you can think of a single day where whatever you felt like when you woke up was exactly what you felt like all day long? Yeah, I didn't think so. Uh, Wake up happy. doesn't take long before something sets you off and now you're upset. But you don't stay upset for long. Something good happens and now you're happy again, right? We change like the weather. You want an example of this? Let me ask you a question. I want you to answer honestly. Don't have to answer out loud, but just think about it. How many of you are afraid of the dark? Nyctophobia, this is called. You're afraid of the dark? Or do you remember ever being afraid of the dark? Of course you do. You know why? Because everybody's afraid of the dark. It's odd that in infants, they're not afraid of the dark at all. About two years old... Something happens and a fear of the dark in us is triggered. It's triggered in everyone. It happens across societies, whether you live in a, in a part of the world where it's dark more than it's light. doesn't matter. It's hardwired into us. I don't really know why. Um, but every child at some point has a fear of the dark. Now, we do outgrow it over time, uh, but we never fully outgrow it completely. And so most adults retain some element of discomfort with the dark going all the way back to when they were two years old. Now, here's what's kind of interesting. When you have been afraid of the dark, or when your children have been afraid of the dark, what would you do to address it? You just turn the light on. And the moment the light comes on, the fear goes away. Whatever it is that they're imagining, or that you're imagining in the dark, once you see it's not there, the fear goes away. They go back to sleep almost immediately. I remember as a kid walking between my grandmother's house and my parents' house down this long wooded path. Scared the bejeebers out of me. Didn't scare me at all in the daytime. Our entire world view, if you can if you can use that word, I know it's a word that you know is sort of popular today in the sort of pop sociology literature, but our world view, if you will, Changes just because someone turns a light switch on. Child's scared to death, or an adult. Scared to death of some sound. Get up, turn a light on. Oh, it's nothing there. Go right back to bed. Our sense of security changes. Our <clears throat> view of the world changes. Our whole disposition. We're nervous, we're anxious, or ah, we're relieved. Based on just turning on a light. Our view of the world is not immutable. Our understanding of the things we see and of the situations around us is not immutable. God's is. And understanding to see as he sees provides us tremendous comfort. So here's what we're going to define real quick. The word is, I put it up there as the title, wisdom. I looked up the definition of wisdom, found it completely unsatisfying. 
Sorry, uh, and I'll tell you why in just a minute, but I can't tell you how many, um, how many sermons I've heard, how many lessons, podcasts, where people have said, this person wasn't very wise. Well, we generally tend to use the result of an action to choose the wisdom of an action. It turned out well for us. Oh, must have been wise. I find that completely unsatisfying, and that is more or less the Webster's definition. It is the exercise of good judgment that produces sound outcomes. Depending upon which dictionary you read, that's going to be close to the definition number one. Suppose you got lucky. Is it still wise? Suppose you did it wrong, but unintentionally got it right. Was it still wise? I don't know how to use that definition in the here and now. Because I have no idea how things are going to turn out. I'll use good judgment best I can. Think about it really hard. Pray about it. Ask people. Seek wise counsel. Make a decision. Is that a wise decision? Well, based on most understandings, they'll have to wait and hear how it turns out. See, I think that's the wrong way to view it. I think if you're going to choose something wisely, if you're going to understand wisely, if you're going to, in fact, be wise... What you have to do is pray to be able to see things before they happen. Sounds weird. Let me word it a different way. You have to be able to see the way God sees. And God doesn't show us everything. But every little glimpse of his vision that we can get makes us that much wiser. I'll give you two examples. One real quick that I didn't intend to give you and then one from Scripture. The one real quick is the song that we just heard. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. It doesn't always feel that way. But that's because we're just not seeing as he sees. God understands. Our sins are white as snow. We stand in front of him fully justified. We just don't feel it yet. But every now and then he'll just give you a little glimpse of it. Just a little glimpse. Peel back just a bit the the, the wrapping and let you look inside the box. And you'll see the glory of heaven. That happens to me generally when I'm listening to music. And when I'm listening to a group like this, thing, you guys were great. That was a terrific song. Um, and for me, I just felt my spirit leap as I listened to it. God just sort of showed me a little bit of my glory. do not always feel that way. But I promise you it's true. I promise you because he says it's true. So turn with me, if you don't mind, to Second Kings. I don't think you have to turn with me. We have it on the, we have the technology. Look at this. All right. Second Kings, uh, Statesboro, Georgia, right here, man. Cutting edge of technology. Uh, chapter six, second Kings chapter six. We're going to read eight through 17. Great story. Um, you know, maybe you'll like it, maybe you won't, but you've probably heard it before. It's not a real um, significant story in the sense that there's a lot of historical importance happening here. Uh, it's, it deals with Elisha. Uh, I'll read you the story and then tell you a couple of things about it, and then we'll make some observations and uh, see what you think. All right, so let's see. We're starting at chapter or verse 8 of chapter 6. Now, the king of Aram... Aram was a, um, just so you know, was a small country as an over 
uh, overstated way to say it. Small nation state, tribal state, centered around Damascus. It was later absorbed into the Assyrian Empire. You don't need to know who it is. There's no great significance in that other than it's just a guy who was at war with the northern kingdom of Israel. The king of the northern kingdom of Israel at the time was Jehoram. The king of Aram was a guy named Ben-Hadad. Now, the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I'll set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God, now the man of God is Elisha. It refers to him as the man of God there. The man of God uh, sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked uh, on the place indicated by the man of God time and again. Elijah warned the king. This happened many times. So he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. In essence, he was setting traps for him, setting, um, you know, an ambush. And every time Israel, the king of Israel had been notified, so the ambush didn't work. And it enraged the king of Aram. He summoned the officers and demanded of them, will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my Lord King, said one of his officers, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. So go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men to capture him. The report came back. He's in Dothan. Then they sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out, Early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant said. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elijah prayed, Oh, Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes. And he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, all we need to do is see what is really there. All we need to do is see clearly uh, the world you've created. See clearly how you see us. See clearly how you see others. Lord, see clearly who you are and your son Jesus is. Lord, we want that vision. We want to be able to see and to be truly wise. And we pray that you open the eyes of our heart this morning, that we can do that. Thank you. Amen. All right. So here's the story. Clearly, the theme is being able to see what's there. Uh, Clearly, it's easy to see ourselves in this. We're a lot like the servant, aren't we? You know, I mean, he looks out. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? He's scared. First, first reaction is to be scared. First reaction is to react uh, out of fear and to react as things seem. Who wouldn't? There's a whole army there to capture him. Elijah, on the other hand, the man of God, as it's referred to, um, demonstrates a very different type of character. His character is the one that we associate with God. It's quiet. It's calm. Not the least bit worried. Now, they don't tell us what's going on here, but it says it's early in the morning. And so it doesn't take a lot of imagination to assume that the servant is there looking out the window, you know, scared to death. Meanwhile, Elijah's sitting at his kitchen table having a bowl of cereal. Not the least bit worried. In fact, doesn't even address the concerns of the army. He just says, hmm, who are with us and mourn with them? He doesn't even know who's with them. And so he prays that the servant can see what is really there. The servant sees what's really there. And the whole thing 
sort of goes away. Now, what follows is Elijah prays and the army's blinded and they take the army back to another city. It doesn't matter right now. What I want to focus on is this interaction between Elijah and the servant and the reality of God. Because I think in that little interaction, just in those few verses, there's an awful lot there that certainly is comforting to me, I think will be comforting to you, but that also helps us to see our lives as God hopes we will see them and helps us to act accordingly. So I'm going to make four points on these things, uh, on this, these few verses, and try and flesh them out for you a little bit, and we'll see where we go. All right? We good with this so far? All right. First point, um, limits on our sight are not limits on God. Have you guys, hey, hey, this is a good example. I wish I should have, I should have gotten this picture. Have you guys ridden Space Mountain at Disney? Show of hands. It's a great ride. Have you ever seen Space Mountain with the lights turned on? Hey, all you got to do is Google it on your phone. Space Mountain with the lights on, and you will see a picture of what looks like kind of a small erector set type of roller coaster. It's not nearly as intimidating as the experience in the dark. Again, the reality of the situation obscured by our vision of it. In this case, the reality of the situation was there was a whole lot. I mean, that, that God had Elijah and his servant in their hand. The view of it, though, was just of the army. And the guy was scared to death. But our vision of something does not change the reality beyond our perception. There is a reality beyond our perception. Right now, in this room, I promise you Jesus is here. How do I know that? Because he told us he would be. We're two or more gathered. I will be there in their midst. In our midst, he is here. Okay? Prove it, you say. I can't. Not to your satisfaction. Your vision is so limited that, just like with that picture, I can tell you there's a Milky Way galaxy up there. Until the clouds are gone, you're not going to be able to see it. And yet we know it's true because Jesus promises it's true. And so this ability to understand the difference between what we see and what is really there, what we feel, what we sense, what we believe, and what is really there is a real key to understanding the true nature of who we are in God and the true nature of our lives every day as we go through it. Look at a couple examples real quick. In 1 Kings uh, chapter 8, Solomon had just built the temple and they were installing the temple. They had put the, put the Ark of the Covenant in there. And I mean, the people were all just shouting. This was, this was the, the peak if you will, of, of the nation uh, of Israel's sort of moment of, of, of power, of influence, of significance. They were everything God wanted them to be, and they had done everything God had told them to do, and they were just, they were thrilled with it. And as part of his prayer, I've always been fascinated that Solomon reminded them, and here it is from verse 27, will God dwell on earth? Heaven cannot contain you. In essence, Solomon was saying in his prayer, you all do realize God doesn't live in this building. In kind of the same way, I would remind us, we put a significant amount of in, um, what's, the, what's the right word for this? We put a significant amount of emphasis on the buildings that our churches are in. You do know that God doesn't really live in these buildings. Not if he is who he says he is. 
Now, if he's not who he says he is, then I guess I don't really care where he lives. But if he is who he says he is, he doesn't live in these buildings. And he lives everywhere. In our hearts and in every space in between them. And Solomon is reminding the people of that reality. From 1 Corinthians verse 13. This is the, the, the famous love passage that many of you have read. The conclusion of that long passage is this. Now we see through a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I, will sh- then I shall know fully. Just like the pictures I showed. You can kind of recognize sometimes a little bit of what's there. But until all the obstacles are removed, you'll never see fully. We can never fully understand love, is the passage and the, the intent of, of Paul in explaining this. In telling us that as we are perfected, as we learn to love, as we learn to see and understand, we see more and more and we see more and more accurately. And it's kind of like the maturation process, certainly the the maturation, physical maturation process that goes along with our growth is a nice metaphor for that. But it's not exactly that because some people just see more earlier. They can simply mature spiritually quicker than others. Some of us takes forever. Um, But as we begin to see the reality that's really there, we understand truly the love God has for us. And we understand the love that we're supposed to have for others. Uh, We will eventually understand fully. We will see fully. Now we see only dimly as through a mirror. Last one of these I'll show you, and this one is the one that really fascinates me, is in Mark. I'm going to turn over here and read it because it's such a good story and there's something about it I want you to see. Uh, Mark chapter 4 verse 35 You'll recognize this story because it's been told a lot. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along. Just as he was in the boat, there were other boats with him. A furious squall came up, kind of like that storm we had yesterday, perhaps. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern. For those of you west of here, that's the back of the boat. Jesus was in the stern. Sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? (laughs) Sounds a lot like Elisha's servant. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and was completely calm. Here's what gets me. He said to his disciples, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Did they know he was going to call them the storm? But they should have known. He gently, but still quite obviously, rebuked them almost. Why are you so afraid? Well, because we're about to die would be the response that would make sense. And he said, do you still have no faith? Don't you know who I am? If I am who I say I am, do you think I'm the least bit concerned about a storm? Or for that matter, an army surrounding my prophet? Clearly there is an expectation that we will learn to see as he sees. As we see him clearly, we will understand what that means and we will act accordingly. It's a breathtaking responsibility, but also a breathtaking joy. All right, point number two. Seeing that reality gives understanding and assurance. So here's a, here's, here's a point I'll make for you. Here's a truth I have for you. We, all of us, right, 
are in the palms of an omnipotent God. Now, what does omnipotent mean? Big word? Got to have a PhD to wield words like that. <laughs> what does omnipotent mean? All powerful. What does all powerful really mean? All powerful. Everything. Can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? Yes. And then he'd move it anyway. Because your stupid question tries to bind God in a physical reality in which he can't be bound. Now, if you ever hear that come up by some, you know, sort of smart aleck philosopher, give them my answer. And I do have a real Ph.D. So, you know, um, gee whiz, I'm just astounded sometimes. All powerful means all about we're in his hands and he has promised us stuff. And those promises are fully in force whether we feel them or not. And so he's fully capable of delivering us. Philippians 4.19. Um, Paul loved the Philippians and they'd given him stuff and it was great. And this is the passage where he says, I've, I've learned to live in plenty and in want. I appreciate what you've got, but, you know, basically I just give it to other people because I have everything I need. And then he says right here, my God will supply every need according to his riches and glory. Now, I try to supply everything my children need according to my riches and glory. My riches and glory pretty limited. Right? Such that when we fly, we fly coach. No, no offense, guys. Sorry. Uh, such, <laughs> such that we have occasionally been in hotel rooms where one of the four of them had to sleep on the floor because, you know, it was cheaper than buying two hotel rooms. Um, don't laugh. Don't you judge because you know you've done it. Um, <clears throat> according to God's riches and glory, he supplies every need. What are the limits on his riches and glory? None. None. Everything he promises, he's able to deliver. So Paul says, look, send me stuff. It's great. I love you guys. But, you know, I don't need a whole lot. And everything you send me, I give away anyway because God supplies every need according to his riches and glory. Psalm 81. This is one of about, I don't know, 8,000 cases where God is promising the children of Israel blessings that will follow because of the great things he has done in the past. In Psalm 81.10, it says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth and I'll fill it. Everything you need, I will provide. Everything that threatens you, I will take care of. Everything that worries you will go away. So if you have that promise now, then why are you worried? Because the one who promises it is fully capable to deliver. Look at Luke 11. Here we're going to read another one. Uh, and this one always sort of chokes me up. I'll try not to, to, I'll try to do it without blubbering. Um, but it's, it's, it's a great example to me for two reasons. One, I, I love my kids. And those of you who are parents, uh, I, I hope, you know, I'm sure you love your kids the same way. Those of you who are kids, uh, I sure hope your parents loved you. Uh, in, in a way that points you towards our Heavenly Father. Um, but I love my kids, but I'm an imperfect dad. I'll be the first to admit. Uh, I try really hard, but hard as I might try, isn't good enough because, well, I'm imperfect. Uh, and nevertheless, the stuff I do is generally good. And Jesus tells the story where he says, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil... Man, that hurts. 
But it's true. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for it? We are in the hands of an almighty God who loves us, who promises to take care of us, who generation after generation for thousands of years has given example and had people write down that example so we can read and learn from that example and have confidence in the fact that we are fully assured of our security and safety. And yet all it takes to make us worry is somebody to turn the light switch off. famous old guy named Matthew Henry once said, The opening of our eyes is the silencing of our fears. The clearer our sight of God, the less our fears of the world. Read that again. The opening of our eyes is the silencing of our fears. The clearer our sight of God, the less our fears of the world. If you're fearful of anything, and I got news for you, I'm a lot closer to Elijah's servant than I am to Elijah. Some days more than others. Any fear you have is rooted in an unclear picture of God. Because if you see him clearly, all, all fear goes away. All right, point number three. Given that, our hope is not rescue from our circumstances. But wisdom to see ourselves in our circumstances as God does. See, if we're in the hand, in the palm of an almighty God, what do we need to be rescued from? We're right where he wants us to be. It just doesn't seem so at times. And God knows this. John sixteen thirty three. I've told you these things. I love this. He, he reminds them. Listen, I'm telling you this so that when you're worried, you'll think back and remember. And then you'll go, oh, he knew this was coming anyway. He says, I've told you these things that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Psalm 85, 9, another one. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him. Romans 8, 31. This is kind of like the passage we read from 2 Kings. But if God is for us, who can be against us? 2 Corinthians 8. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Wow. Look over at John with me real quick. Show you something that is just amazing to me. And that parallels the passage we just saw. Uh, John 17. I'm going to read 14 uh, through 17, verse 14 through 17. This is um, a part of what's called the high priestly prayer. Priestly because Jesus, the high priest, Jesus being the high priest, priestly because he prays for his disciples. And he prays something really interesting here. I want you to see in 14 says, I've given them your word. Now he's praying for his disciples here. I've given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My, here it is. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth of your word. Now, before I make the, the, what, I, what I think will be a pretty obvious point here, let me, let me ask a question. Who's this to again? He's praying for his disciples. But look over in verse 20, two verses later. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now, who's that include? Every one of us. And he has said, I pray not that you take them out of the world. 
There are times when I would prefer to have my circumstances changed. There are times when I would prefer not to continue in the world as I have it right now. And then I look and I see Jesus say, well, I don't ask you to take them out of the world. I don't ask you to take them out of their circumstances. I ask you to protect them from evil. And what's really fascinating about this to me is if we go back to the passage we just read, look at what Elisha, how he responded to the servant. The servant says, and let's see if I can find it real quick. Uh, I'm sorry. Go to where you, and then the servant says, uh, when the man of God got up, went out the next morning, he said, oh, my Lord, what shall we do? Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than with them. And then he prayed that God would open his eyes. He didn't pray that they would be removed. That anything about the situation would change. Only that he would see what was really there. I'll show you one other case of this. Go over to... I'm going to read this one too, if you don't mind. It's over to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is easy to find. If you don't know where to find it, it's right next to Jeremiah. Answers all your questions, right? All right. Uh, this is verse 35, or chapter 35. Uh, if, you're, if your Bible has a, a heading, the heading for this one is the joy of the redeemed. But this is, in essence, another of those cases where God describes for the children of Israel the promises fulfilled and their, their lives accordingly. Their promises, his promises to them fulfilled and their joy as a result. Starting in verse 3. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those who fear with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will your eyes, then will the eyes of the blind be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer. And the mute Tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts there will be where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. We have the promises of God. And those promises are backed up by the omnipotence of God and the love of God and are evidenced by over and over and over again His demonstrating His capability and willingness and desire to make His people whole and to fulfill His promises. And so our salvation, our hope is not in being removed from our circumstances. Because... Even if we were removed from our circumstances, we'll be right back in a different circumstance tomorrow. Our hope is in the promises of God and in His salvation. So, this is my fourth point. Seeing God gives us the confidence to focus on others instead of on ourselves. You see, 
Elijah was confident. He didn't even address the other army. Didn't bother to count how many people were there. Didn't have to. He knew that their salvation was assured by the promises of God. And so he just, in an offhanded way, said, Lord, open his eyes so he can see what's there. Bang. That was enough. Uh, servant was concerned for his safety, concerned for, you know, all the stuff that he could see. Elijah wasn't concerned about any of that. Instead, he was concerned with the reality that was really there. Uh, Psalm 3, uh, verse 6, David is, of course, surrounded by armies trying to kill him. Saul's armies, he had rebellions against uh, in, within his own kingdom led by his son. Uh, he lived under tremendous threat for much of his life. And he says, I will not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Uh, Joshua 1, Moses had, had come into Egypt and had demonstrated God's power through calling the, the, on these plagues that God brought on Egypt. And then he led the people out and through the Red Sea and they'd had manna, you know, from heaven and they'd seen miracles. And then they get to the promised land and, and Moses died. And... Uh, God immediately comes to Joshua and says, my servant's dead. My servant Moses is dead. Now get up and you lead the people. And in this brief passage at the beginning of the book of, of Joshua, he uh, tells Joshua three or four times, I didn't count, be courageous and do not have fear. And in verse 9 he says, have I not commanded you, reminding him about the times before he said this, be strong and courageous, do not be discouraged for the Lord your God is with you and be with you wherever you go. If you go all the way back to the very beginning, Genesis 12, we kind of begin to put the pieces together and see why this is so. Genesis 12, verse, let's just read the first three verses. God comes to Abram. This was later Abraham, still called Abram here. Had not had the covenant with God established at this point. God came to him and said, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land and I'll show you. <laughs> Get up and go. That would have made someone, that would make us nervous now. Uh, it made them significantly more nervous before Google. Get up and go. To a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless those I will bless you and make you a great name, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. He has all the confidence, all the backing, all the assurance of the promises of God so that he can be a blessing to others. Hard to be a blessing when you're nervous about yourself. Hard to be a blessing when you're scared. Hard to be a blessing when you're insecure and frightened. But if you have no reason for fear, have no reason for insecurity, have no reason to worry about whether your money's going to run out, have no reason to worry about whether or not you're going to pass a class or not, have no reason to worry about whether or not you'll succeed or not in the next job. You can be a blessing to others simply because you know that the one who's called you is the one who has the power to deliver you through every circumstance. 
So I said four points, but I'm going to make a fifth. And, and it's, it's because of something unique about this passage that is meant to remind us. I believe, by the way, and again, I say this not to impress you. I say this because there are those who will say that belief in the Scriptures is unscientific. Belief in the Scriptures is uninformed. Certainly those of you in the university community are uh, beset with this on a regular basis. I have, a, I have a Ph.D. I'm the dean of the Parker College of Business. I believe every single word that's here. Not only that, <laughs> I believe every single word that's here was put here for a reason. God's sending us a message through every word of Scripture. And there's an important word in here that we could overlook. Where was Elisha when this happened? Do you remember? He's in the city of Dothan. What do we know about the city of Dothan? It's actually mentioned only one other time in all of Scripture. There is a Dothan, Alabama. With all due respect to my father-in-law, who's from that part of the world, Dothan, Alabama isn't isn't much to look at. Uh, But there is a Dothan in northern Israel. It's where this happened. It's mentioned only one other time in Scripture. It is the place where Joseph came upon his brothers and his brothers threw him in a well. Now, the word Dothan means two wells. Two wells there. There's still one of those two wells they believe there now, still bubbling up water from the surface. Uh, But because it was a place where wells were, there were also dry cisterns, dry wells. And one of those dry wells is where they threw Joseph. Now, That was an evil act, and one could forgive Joseph for being pretty discouraged when he's thrown into a well in Dothan and then later pulled out and sold to a group of Midianites who took him to Egypt and sold him into slavery there. But Look over Genesis 50. This is verse 20, when Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. They were scared to death because... Of what they had done. Joseph said to him, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended harm for me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. Even things that we see as evil, God uses for good. And I believe He placed this story right here. Could have done it anywhere, Elisha could have been anywhere. But he put him here so that we would say, wait a minute. Even the things that, I've heard this story before, and and even things that are intended for evil, God can use for good. And so whatever the circumstance is that you're facing today or sometime in the future, our challenge is not to respond to it by saying, I know God can fix this problem. No, God's doesn't plan to fix every problem. Jesus prayed that his disciples not be removed from the world that hated them or the consequences associated with it. His intention is for us to see him more clearly. Because in seeing him more clearly, it drives out all fear. Now, Several of you know me, some, some of you don't, but we are 
dealing with a, a, a serious challenge in our family. We're not surrounded by an army. We're attacked from within by cancer. But our challenge and our prayer and our hope is not that this circumstance will be removed. I pray that it is. But even if it is, we could fall sick of something else tomorrow. Even if it is, we could have some tragedy tomorrow. Our prayer is not that we be removed from our circumstances, but that we see God clearly. Because even as scary as cancer is, the promises of God are stronger. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I... Lord, I just bow in your presence. Lord, I'm a, I'm a weak man. Lord, we're all weak without you. The scriptures say that but for your love for us and your investment in us, we're dust. Here today and gone tomorrow. And so, Lord, our salvation is in seeing ourselves as you see us. Seeing our world as you see us. Our desire is that you wrap your arms around us and make yourself real to us so that we can walk in the confidence that allows us to serve others in the way you created us to do. Amen. This is um, part of the service called The Invitation. Uh, Having praised and worshipped and and heard God's word, God issues an invitation for us to respond. Response and the opportunity to, the invitation and the opportunity to respond is there for everyone. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, because you have no idea that Jesus is alive and and, uh, truly a Savior, then He invites you to come. To pray, and He promises to enter in and to, to rescue you from a life that is otherwise without value. But even if you do know Him and you're surrounded by circumstances that threaten as an army camped outside your door, He wants you to have confidence and He promises that if you ask, He'll show you just enough make you understand that he has you in his hands. So we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And when we're done or as we're singing, if you want to come up and pray, please do. Our altar is always open. Um, But contemplate your world as God sees it. And contemplate how confident you can be with his promises. Let's sing.